0: This is a very difficult passage. One commentator that I read said, "quote said that this is quote perhaps the most difficult passage in the New Testament." Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this quote: "A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament." so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. They're talking here especially about the, the middle part of this paragraph that we're going to be looking at today. And one Bible scholar looked at this in all the different ways you could translate parts of it in different combinations and calculated that there are at least 180 different options for what this passage might mean in the, just in the middle of this passage. So, it is difficult, but that's not even the, the most uh, challenging part because then we're going to get to the end of this passage and we're going to read words that say straight out, baptism now saves you. That is in this passage. Say, so, what are you talking about? We know baptism doesn't save us. We're not saved by being, being dunked. We're not saved by being or sprinkled or anything like that. We're, baptism doesn't save us. This passage is going to straight out say, baptism saves you. So, we're going to have to look at this. We're going to, have to figure this out in context. What, what does this mean? Uh, I'm not allowed to just skip over hard passages of Scripture. And actually, I'm excited to dig into this, because the truths in here are, are glorious. And I hope and I pray that this helps you to understand and think about your salvation in Christ and what he did for you in just an amazing and fresh way. So I really am really uh, stoked and excited to get into this. This might be a message that you need to uh, listen to now and think about or maybe even watch again. Uh, but I pray that God will help you with this. So let's read this, this passage first. And you'll see there's, there's parts that we get and parts that are going to be challenging. So 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. All right, this is the passage we get to deal with today. So we don't get to skip things, and I'm glad that we don't. Some passages require more, more thinking, but they also are just so valuable to us. And the good news, too, is the first part of this, this is not as tough to understand. There's some glorious, awesome truths right at the beginning of this. So even if uh, you, you don't get the rest of this, this first part, this is just a beautiful summary of the gospel in the beginning words. So for the first part, we'll summarize it like this draw out this truth, Jesus was put to death as a substitute for sinners. And here I want to talk about just the first few, uh, the first part of 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And if we think of that, and on the screen here I have it broken down into kind of three lines, and each of these is just a glorious truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us. This is a section that you could use to, to uh, share with somebody to explain these things. And we see the first, it says that Christ also suffered for sins, and it's going to go on after this, say he was put to death in the flesh. That's what this is talking about, him dying on the cross. So I went to Jerusalem, he came to go to the cross. He did that on a purpose, okay, it was his intent to do this. And it was once for sins. So we have some truths here. Christ's death, one from this first line, this was once and done. The death of Jesus Christ was not something that needed to be repeated over and over again. We do not uh, have the, uh, we take the Lord's Supper, we don't think we're re-sacrificing Christ. When Jesus paid the price on the cross, it was paid in full. There were no more extra payments that he had to make. There is no outstanding interest on on the sin debt that he had to pay or anything like that. It was paid in full when he died on the cross. His sacrifice was sufficient. It was once and done. Nothing left over for him to do. Nothing left over for you to have to pay. Once and done for us on the cross. We also see in the second line, the righteous for the unrighteous. A few things I want to pull out of here. But we see that his death was a substitutionary death. There are also a few really key things we need to get out of this. This means, we talk talks about the righteous, that's talking about Jesus Christ. That he is the one who never sinned. He came into this world righteous with no sin debt upon him. He had no original sin. He was born of a virgin. He was kept uh, pure of all this. And he went through life and never sinned. He was completely sinless his entire life, all the way to the end. The suffering that he went through was not because he was a sinner. It was an innocent one being put to death. But not only was he innocent, because you can think there's a lot of things that are innocent. I mean, you know, that never sin. Rocks don't sin. Okay, tables don't sin. All these things, but they don't do good either they're not really moral good they don't they're not agents that can do that but jesus he not only didn't sin but he also kept god's law perfectly he's the only person ever do that he he did it completely from beginning to end but we don't we are the unrighteous that means that, that you and i we're sinners all of us all of sin all fall short of the glory of god if you want to try and uh, compare yourself to your neighbor. You can always find someone that's like more miserable and worse than you, and you can look at them and say, I'm pretty good compared to this person. Uh, you can find uh, you know, someone on TV or on the news that you can feel really good about because your life isn't as messed up as them, even if you, no matter where you're at. And anyone can say, Well, I'm, I'm not as bad as Hitler. But you know what? That's not the standard. The standard is not comparing ourselves against other people and just being better than them. But when you compare yourself against God and against his character, against his laws, you measure yourself against his His commandments, we see that we fall short so much. We have rebellious hearts. We have sinful hearts. And every day there are things that we shouldn't do that we end up doing. There are things that we should do, but we don't do those. We fall short in that way. We don't give glory to God in all things the way that we should. We don't love him the way that, that we should. We, we fall so, so short. So if you think about this, it's like if there was an exam of life to get you into heaven, and you had to sit down and take this exam your whole life and, and, and fill this out, what grade would you need in order to get to heaven? You know what it is? It's 100%. Because Jesus said, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. God doesn't grade on a curve. And guess what? I think about my life at least. I look at this. Man, I got something wrong with every question on this test. I'm not passing this test at all. Jesus comes down and he sits next to us and he takes the test. You know what? He gets everything. He completes God's law perfectly all the way through all the time. And here's the deal. It says the righteous for the unrighteous. I mean, Jesus came to be our, our substitute. He didn't come to be your tutor to help you do better on your own past so that you can be saved. That's not going to work. We're not, we're not, we've already screwed it up. We've already got wrong answers. We've already sinned. We've already rebelled. And we can't get to heaven that way. But the way that it works is that it says, okay, he's got his perfect test filled out, and we've got ours that's, that's terrible, or we're scoring zero here. He says, you know what? You've got to turn these in. Let's trade. I'll give you mine. I'll take yours. And that's what he does. That he takes the, the credit for our, our, our miserable life of, of sin and failure. And that's why he goes to the cross and dies for us, because that's a consequence of that. And we get the credit for his perfect life, and we get to enter heaven, not because of good that we have done, but because of what, the good that he has done for us. Now, if that was school, that'd be cheating. Okay? But as far as salvation, that's the only way this can work. You know, and God is the judge, and he's okay with it. And He knows There's no other way for us to be saved. Christ had to come and be our substitute. And you have to accept him, the Lord Jesus, as your substitute. And then it says that he might bring us to God. This tells us the goal of all this. It's to, to bring you to God. This is the goal. It, and notice what it is. is not just to get you out of hell, to keep you from going to hell. I believe the Bible talks about hell. It warns us against hell. Hell is a real place. Hell is awful. You don't want to go there. But Jesus, when he came, it wasn't just so that, oh, you don't have to go to hell. It's so that you get to be with him, that you get to have life with him that starts now, that he changes your heart so that you realize that any treasure that this world could offer you is nothing compared to the treasure that you can have in knowing God through Jesus Christ. And having your heart transformed so you can find more glory and joy in him than anything else. If it was just a matter of not being in hell, Okay, nobody wants to be in hell, but that's not the gospel. That's not the goal. That's not the, the salvation that God is, is giving you and offering you. It's to reunite you with, with Christ, to reunite you with God through Christ because we are dead in our sins. We're, we're cut off. We're separated. That's what spiritual death is. But Christ came and he died and he rose to bring us back to God, to be reconciled to him, to have spiritual life. So he didn't come just to give you your perfect life or to give you the success that your definition of success in this life. He didn't come to give you health and wealth. He came to give you something way better than that, to have life with God and eternity with him, knowing him. All right, so that's the beginning part of this. And just this, that part is, is glorious, that is beautiful. I hope you understand that. We're going to deal with some of the rest of this, and it's, it's challenging. Let's look at this. Uh, the second part, uh, we'll summarize key here. We talked about Christ being put to death. Uh, the second part, it, Jesus was made alive. we are actually read this again, starting at the end of verse 18. Being put to death, That really goes with what we just read, but it's important we look at this because it's going to parallel. Uh, He's being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You got a contrast there. Then it says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, it would take hours to go through all of the options and details needed to interpret this verse and to deal with it. We're not going to do all that. And I really want to get to point three. Because I think point three just is, is so glorious. But we need to talk about this as well, too. First issue that we have here, uh, we get being put to death in, in the flesh. Jesus came. Part of the reason he took on a, a human body, he became the God-man, is so that he could die for humans. He had to be fully God and fully human. So he, did, he died as a, as a human being as the God-man. But what does it mean when it said he was made alive in the Spirit? Actually, there's lots of different options as far as this. And at first, I might think, well, this is about the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected. Well, he is, and the passage goes on and talks about this. But there's also some kind of difficulties as we think about this. Because why would it say he's, he's made alive, if this is about the resurrection, in the Spirit? Why just focus on that? So it's kind of a question, because when Jesus was was raised, okay, it's not just that his his spirit came back, like the ghost of Christ came back into this world, and his ghost is alive or or something like that. The resurrection that we're going to celebrate on Easter next week is Jesus is uh, his his physical death is finished. Death is always separation, okay. So when you die. Physically, you have a physical part of you and you have an immaterial part of you, your soul or spirit, however you want to call it, and those are meant to be together in human beings. And when you die physically, those things are broken in half and your body goes into the ground or or whatnot and uh, your your, your soul or spirit's going to go somewhere. And that happened to Jesus. Resurrection is when those things are put back together. They're reassembled the way that we're meant to be. The immaterial and the physical part, because the physical is not bad. It's not evil. We're meant to be like that. So this can't mean that he was just uh, coming alive as a a ghost or as a spirit. The the resurrection was a physical thing. Although notice it doesn't specifically say here resurrected in the spirit. It says made alive in the spirit. Now, I have to say this too, because it's another option. The words here can also be translated differently. The word for in can also be translated by, as by. And spirit could either be lowercase or uppercase. In your Bible, it might be one or the other. The translators have to make a decision there. In the, the oldest manuscripts, the whole thing's written in capital letters. Uh, so you just can't go by that. It's the translators make a decision. So if it's lowercase spirit, is it talking about Christ, you know, his spirit, his immaterial part? Or is it talking about the Holy Spirit, that Christ was raised maybe from the dead by the Holy Spirit? And there's actually a possibility to that because Romans 8.11 does refer to the Holy Spirit as raising Jesus from the dead. So that is biblical in other places. question is, is that what Peter means here? And it also seems that flesh and spirit here seem to parallel each other and that would be a different type of spirit than, than flesh. So maybe, but, but maybe not. You know, a lot of commentators, when they look at this, uh, they state that this is actually about flesh and spirit, about two different states or spheres of Christ's existence. Two different modes of existing. And to me, that's kind of hard to understand. What does that actually, what does that mean? Two different modes of, of existence. Um, and one thing that it kind of might mean might have something to do with 1 Corinthians fifteen forty four, Because there it's talking about the resurrection and it's talking about, the, it's talking about uh, Jesus being raised with a spiritual body. And we have to remember when he's raised with a spiritual body, it doesn't mean that he's a ghost or he's just a spirit. He was, also, he was raised physically. I mean, you could touch him. He could eat. It talks about him eating fish. So why a spiritual body? And I think the way to understand that, it's kind of like if you had different cars. Okay, and one person had a, most of them have a gas cars, and some people might have electric cars. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that, okay, the gas cars are made out of gas. They're made out of gasoline. And the electric cars, they're made out of electricity. You get in your electricity car, and it's all electric, and it's cool as that might be. um, We know what that means is that that's what they run on. So when it talks about Christ having a spiritual body, uh, that doesn't mean that he's just a spirit, but that that somehow uh, his his body is is charged by the spirit. It, It runs on the spirit in a different way. And we know that his resurrection body seemed to have different capabilities and powers, and it was no longer mortal. So it was a different kind of body. So that's what it could mean. As I was thinking about it too, another thought that I had being made alive in the Spirit, realized, okay, it doesn't specifically say resurrection. Could it be true that there's a sense that Jesus is made alive even before the resurrection? First thought, well, that, that doesn't make sense. But the more I thought about it, I thought, maybe that could be true. Because there is a there is a difference between physical death and, and spiritual death. We've been talking about this. You know, our, our physical death is being our, as we said, our physical part and the immaterial part were separated. But spiritual death is also something that's very real. If you're here today, you're, you're physically alive, but you may, be phys- you may be spiritually alive or you may be spiritually dead still. We come into this world spiritually dead in our sins, cut off from God, separated from God. Remember, death is always separation. We're cut off from the God that made us. We're, we're, we're not united with him. We're not in a right relationship with him. But when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, by faith, you're born again into a living hope. You, you're reunited with him. Now think of this. When Jesus went to the cross, what he came to do, when he was there, he legally took the condemnation of your sin he took that upon himself he he became sin for us he went, went to the cross in the eyes of god he was legally guilty of your sins think of the worst sins you've done and he that was what he was nailed to the cross for those things now when we say that that doesn't mean that like the trinity was broken apart you can't snap off a third of the trinity or anything like that but it does mean that, that legally, at this time, as our substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he was bearing our condemnation. And I think there's a sense we could say that not only did Jesus die uh, physically on the cross, and that was bad enough, but I think if you think about it the right way, there's a sense that Jesus died spiritually for us on the cross, taking the condemnation of God as the God-man for us. Again, he can't be separated from the Trinity, but he, in this role, was becoming condemned for us. When did that end? When did that stop? Was it at the the resurrection? Well, let's think about this. When Jesus died, the instant that he died, I believe it was once and done and it was finished. Because remember, Jesus, one of the things he said right before he died he said, it is finished. And that phrase literally means paid, paid in full. Then we died, it was done. He did not uh, have to suffer any more after that. Do you remember there's the, the thief on the cross next to him? There's, there's two thieves. He's, he's nailed there between two of them. And they're both cursing on him out, But one repents. One has a change of mind and heart and says, hey, I'm guilty. I deserve this. But you're innocent. You don't deserve this. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? Does he say to him, I guess I'll see you in three days after I go to hell and burn in hell for three days because I got more to do paying for sin. He doesn't say that. He says, I tell you the truth. I'll be with you today in paradise. You'll be with me today in paradise. And that's true because once Jesus finished dying, once he breathed his last, that the price was paid. It was done. So that period of being um, under God's wrath and and legally uh, condemned for us was over. So there's a sense that I think it makes sense to say that even before He was physically alive again, He was He was back to being spiritually alive, back to being uh, just in right standing with God the way that He always should have been, because His work of being our substitute, uh, bearing our sin, was. That was, that was paid. It was once and done. And so, in the same way that you are spiritually alive now if you're a Christian, and you will remain spiritually alive even when you die physically, and you won't be reassembled physically until Christ returns, okay? But you're still spiritually alive. That starts at the moment that you're born again, and that carries on even in that time where you're waiting for the the, the resurrection to happen for us. So I think that could be what it means. So there's different options, hard to say for sure, and I think there's truth in each of these, but exactly what Peter means, I don't know. Now the next part is also tough. Now when it talks about in which he went, okay, in the spirit or by the spirit, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, what's going on here? First of all, when did this happen? Was it between his death and resurrection? Was it after that a different time? Who are these spirits? And what is he proclaiming to them? There's all kinds of different options. I'm going to give you three to think through and can evaluate. The first option and this has been put forward by uh, different people through the ages. Origin was a a theologian in the early church, and Clement of Alexandria, they had this this view, and this view was uh, basically that Jesus preached to human spirits in hell to give them a second chance to be saved. That maybe there's people that never heard or never had a good shake of, of being saved, or hey, he wants everyone to come to you know salvation, and in the end, love's going to win, and everyone gets saved. And so if you didn't accept Christ now in this life, hey, don't worry, you get a chance later on. And there are people you know, today that, that want to believe this. And in some ways, it, it seems like that would be a great thing. We wouldn't have to worry so much about you know, people going to hell or evangelism or, or doing that. We wait for that to happen later on. problem with this is that the Bible teaches really clearly that there's no chance of salvation after death. In Hebrews 9, 21 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. While you're still alive, you still have the chance to be saved. You still have that option. And some people think, Well, I'll put that off to the end of life, you know, and then I'll get saved because, you know, I, I got stuff I want to do. I don't want to have to live with him being Lord and all this. Uh, I want to I do that, but I'll wait till the end. Well, you know what? You don't know when the end's going to be. You may think you have all this time left for your exam, but. You know, Sooner or later, time's up, pencil's down. And so you need to come to Christ now. This is the time, but it doesn't last forever. Also in Luke 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And that story, the rich man, uh, he lived this great life, and he dies, and he goes, it talks about Hades, and this is how I think it was in the Old Testament times, that you didn't go directly to uh, to, to, to heaven or to the lake of fire quite yet it is this temporary area and it seems to be two halves and it talks about a great chasm in between. You read it sometime in Luke 16 and so the rich man goes to one side Lazarus, this beggar, goes to be with the other side, Abraham's side where there's comfort but there's a chasm in between and the whole point of the story is there's no crossing over, there's no second chances for people at death that's all there is. You know another problem with this also is that in First Peter, it states this was specifically about spirits that were disobedient at the time of Noah. So this isn't about some kind of, we're going to take the gospel to everyone in hell and give them another chance. So the three options I'm going to give you, I think it's really clear that this one is, this is not a valid option. This is not biblical. The next one, which is possible, and I used to not give this one a lot of stock, but I, I think there's, there's possibility to it is that this is about Jesus preaching through Noah to sinners before the flood, way back in, in Genesis, before the flood came. And so here when it says, in which he went, he went in the Spirit or by the power of Spirit and proclaimed, uh, and maybe the gospel, he's, he's imploring people, hey, warning, warning, judgment's coming. You know, you, you, you can repent. You still have, you're giving time here to be saved before the judgment comes and the flood sweeps you away. If this is the case, then the spirit's in prison. Um, maybe it means that they were imprisoned spiritually in their sins. Or it might mean, well, they're in prison now, but they, they weren't in, they're weren't in hell now, uh, but they weren't there then. That's a possibility. I used to think it was pretty far-fetched. Uh, this is a view of um, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and there are many others uh, today as well, too, that hold to this. But things to notice in Second Peter two five, it does refer to Noah as a herald or a preacher of righteousness. That he was, you know, he's not just building the ark and hammering nails and doing this. He's also proclaiming this truth and warning people, and speaking to them. You know, during this this time period, And it might have been you know one hundred and twenty years as they're waiting to to build the ark. But also, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, which we read several weeks ago, there was an interesting part here where it talked about the Old Testament prophets. And the Old Testament prophets, it mentioned for them, it said, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They were trying to inquire what, what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So, okay, the spirit of Christ is in them and th- prophesying, so there is biblical reason to think that it probably is true that Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through the Old Testament prophets, and including Noah, was preaching to people and calling them to repent. Now, whether that's what Peter means, that's a question mark, but it's a possibility. Another possibility, and this is just the third that I'll give you, is that this is about Jesus proclaiming his victory to fallen angels imprisoned especially because of their sins in the days of Noah. Because again, we read this passage in the context of here is in the days of Noah, while the ark's being prepared and all this. And, uh, but it also talks about the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in this time. And if we look back in Genesis 6, and we, we can't talk about this in detail. When we get to 2 Peter, uh, we'll be able to talk about this even more. But it talks about, it says, it calls it the sons of God. And it depends what it means by this, but it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And it talks about having them having offspring and this being a very wicked thing. There are different interpretations, but one is that this might mean that these were angels or fallen angels, evil spirits, demons, and somehow that they were mating with human women. I think if that happened The way that it makes the most sense would be I think they're, um, you know, possessing mortals because I think you still need a human body to do this for the genetics of it. Uh, But that is some kind of awful evil sin that was going on that there are other places in Scripture that talk about it and that these angels or demons are given special punishment that they are uh, not re- released back on the earth at all like, like some of the other demons, but they are uh, locked in a special type, type of dark prison. So this could mean that Jesus went back uh, maybe before the resurrection or maybe after it, depending on how you translate some of the other stuff, and that he, he's not giving them the gospel, but the word means to, to uh, proclaim and to proclaim his victory that he is he is one death has not defeated them giving them the news that satan uh, their leader has not been victorious that he that he is the, the winner of this and it might have been broadcast to the rest of the underworld and the spiritual world as well tough section we can be glad that most of scripture is not this difficult God has his reasons for inspiring tough texts and it causes us to think and chew on it. But the Bible, it should make us happy that the Bible is so clear in its core message. And the core message of this part is still very clear. Jesus is made alive. Okay, death was not victorious over Jesus. Even though it seemed like it had its way with him and put him to the cross and he went to, and uh, he died for us, is not get the final say. And also importantly from this, realize you don't get a second chance after you die. It's this life. And after pencils down, that's it. You've either trusted Christ, accepted him as your Lord and Savior, or you haven't, and your eternity is fixed. God is patient. He isn't just your first sin, send you right to hell, or you come into this world as a sinner and, shuttle you right off to to hell. He gives you time to repent, to turn to him. But just like the people in Noah's day, they, they had time, but they didn't have forever. Eventually, time runs out. Eventually, the floodwaters, the judgment comes. I plead with you, turn to Jesus now. He died for the unrighteous. He didn't die for squeaky clean people. If you're like, I'm too unrighteous. Nope, he died for sinners. If you're a sinner, good. That's who he came for. Trust him to save you. Now this last section here, this is tough, but this is a great section. So I I hope I can make this clear uh, to you as far as what I think it means. Let me summarize it like this, although this isn't going to make sense until we get to the end. Those in Christ have been put to death and made alive with him, with Jesus Let me start reading here in 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, this is the tough part. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, this is tough because we look at this and we say, wait, whoa, 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 is saved by, by baptism? Wait a second, we talk all the time that we're not saved by baptism. When we do baptisms, we're very clear to say, this doesn't save you. When I, if I dunk you in the baptismal tank, this is not when you're being saved, this is not how you're saved. If you were baptized somewhere else, if you were baptized as a baby, that does not save you. We're real clear on that. We're real clear from other places in Scripture in saying that we were saved by grace alone. It's a free gift. And it's based on the work of Christ alone, what He did, not what you did, not any ceremony or sacrament. And it's received by faith alone, by trusting Him. I mean, just receiving Christ. And it's not by. By being baptized and being dunked in water or being sprinkled in water. So what does this mean? But this passage says this baptism now saves you. And there are some churches that do teach baptismal regeneration. There's some that teach that you're not actually saved until you do get water baptized. And there's some, that actually even more, that teach that if you get baptized, let's say, as a baby... Um, that that at least temporarily saves you, that you're temporarily right with God unless you commit a mortal sin or something, but that you're right with God because of baptism and that that work. Well, we need to look at this. We can't just cut this out of our Bible, but we need to read it in context and we need to notice a few things. One thing to notice that's real helpful is that uh, at the end of verse 20, it says, brought safely through water. If you're reading this in a King James, different translations are trying to do their best. In the King James, it says saved by water. I think that's less helpful. I like the ESV here, brought safely through water. I think that's helpful. Second thing to notice is that this passage makes it really, really clear that this is not about water baptism at all. This is not about water baptism. This is about what water baptism represents. Because notice here, it says baptism, which corresponds to this, we'll talk about that in a second, now saves you. But then it says not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, if you, when you get baptized and you get dunked under, you're, you're taking a bath here, okay? It's going to knock the dirt off your body. It's, you're, you're bathing in this way. Which, by the way, this is, when you read this, you have to think baptism by immersion. All of this is going to make sense if you think in that way. And uh, there, are, there are good Christians that have different views on it, but they struggle with how to make sense of this. Because if you think of baptism as just, you know, a few little drops on the forehead, I, I don't see how you make sense of this and understand it. Baptism, the word baptism, literally does mean immersion. And we see that's how it was done in the early church jesus was baptized that way and the symbolism makes sense if you think of baptism like this because what baptism represents is is dying and rising with christ paul talks about this in romans 6 3-5 through and there he says do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death, Remember, it means immersed. You're immersed into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. This baptism is about union with Christ. And, at, and when you have saving faith at salvation at that point, you are united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ spiritually, you die with him and you're raised with him. That's what baptism represents. We put you under the water. It represents being buried, dying with him. And I don't just leave you there. i you up. Because Jesus wasn't left dead and buried. He was, he was raised. And so you're also raised to new life with him. That's what baptism represents, and being baptized in this way makes that clear. Now, back to our passage, too. It says, okay, it's not about the, the water baptism part of it, but it says, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Other translations say pledge instead of appeal. I think appeal makes more sense in the flow of thought, because think of what you're doing when you're, when you're coming to Christ and being saved. You're recognizing that you're a sinner, That Jesus died the the righteous for you the unrighteous and you're owning your sin and you're saying God I need you to forgive me I have all this sin on my conscience I have all this guilt I have all of this that I I I deserve all this punishment And, and you realize this and I need you Jesus to to cleanse my heart to cleanse my conscience to take this guilt away and that's what he does when we're when we're forgiven when we come to him and trust him when you're born again So we're asking him, appeal to God for a good conscience. I think this is salvation by faith alone. Trusting him, asking him to be your savior, asking him to wipe away your sins by what he did for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, going to the cross for you. So I think that is a big part of what makes sense of this, helps us to understand it. But this next part, this is also, this is huge because we look at this, it says baptism which corresponds to this. Okay, what's it talking about? This it's talking about Noah. Remember and it's talking about the Ark? And it's talking about the flood waters and all of this going on. So there's some kind of analogy. It's it's like that in some way. And some people they think, well, baptism, baptisms with water, so it has to be about the flood water and all this, and it somehow washes it away. But think about this. Okay, think about Noah's Ark. Okay, only eight are saved. Noah, his wife, their three sons, their wives. Everyone else in the world judged and wiped out. Okay? The water. Did the water, was that the, what saved them? What did the water do? Did you want to be in the water with Noah? You did not want to be in the water. Okay, the water was not what saved you. The water is what killed you. The water is what wiped out mankind. The water is what brought judgment to sinners. And so we think about this. It is not the water that saved them, that saved Noah. It was the ark. It was being in the ark. Noah was brought safely through judgment. The waters were death. The waters were God's judgment. They were going to kill everyone. But he was saved because he was in the ark. The ark, being in that, is what saved him. we think about this, too, you think about the ark, what it was like. When we think about this, you shouldn't think of it as this pretty little thing where, oh, the water's gently rising and the boat's here floating around. I think this was violent. There were, you know, just torrents of rain there was waters from the deep i think there were just i mean just crashing waves everywhere this was uh you know tidal waves and tsunamis and, and all of this there's a reason why the ark had to be coated with pitch all the way around i mean it was watertight it was basically practically almost a submarine okay this is not floating on the water it's going through the waters of judgment and then after that time it, it, it comes out and the time of judgment's over, and those that are in it are, are saved from that time of judgment. No one is family were saved in there, being in the ark. In the same way, Christian, believer, you are saved by being in Christ. Believers are brought to safety through judgment by being in Christ. So water baptism is not what saves us, but it represents something. It represents dying and rising with Christ. But there's also this fact that this is for those that are united with Christ, those that are in Christ. And Scripture talks about this a lot. To be saved is to be in Christ. And I think the ark is a a representation of that. You know, to think about this, I, I went and I... Stole some toys again from the nursery. Okay. So we got that. So we have the ark here. Uh, this, is, this is not the scale. This is not watertight. But you see, there is a baptism that happens to you the moment that you are saved. Okay, whether you've been baptized or before you're baptized, there is a different type of baptism. That's spiritual baptism. Being baptized by the Holy Spirit Remember, baptism means to be immersed, to be put into something. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you should write that passage down. It says that by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And the context of that body is the body of Christ. So the baptism by the Holy Spirit, some translations say in the Spirit, but by the Spirit makes the most sense. He's the one doing this that when you trust Christ as Savior, okay, this happened when you were born again, that the Holy Spirit, right now you're outside of Christ, and you're going to die. Okay, judgment, flood. Okay, you don't want to be stuck out here. But when you are, are born again, the Holy Spirit puts you in Christ. So now you're in Christ. And as you're in Christ, that means with him, that you have died with him he has gone into the flood waters of, of death and judgment, and then he rose again, came out on the other side. so that you, being there in him and with him, died and rose with him. So is there a sense in which baptism saves you? Yeah, but not water baptism. The baptism that saves you is being in Christ, being put in Christ, being in Christ is what saves you. In Christ you died, and in Christ you rose again to new life. Christ went through judgment to bring you to God. There's more in this passage it talks about the resurrection. You know, next week's Easter. And we're gonna save it till then. But right now I want you to think about this. Jesus went to the cross. And he did this. He died and he rose again. Are you in Christ through faith? Are you still out here in danger of this flood water? I plead with you before you leave this building. You get right with God. If you need to talk to me or Pastor Nick or, or anyone else here, do so. In Christ there is safety. Let's pray. Lord God. We praise you and we give you thanks and praise. You are so worthy. We thank you that you saved us the only way that was possible. That the righteous would die for the unrighteous. We confess, we admit our sins, Lord God. And we are thankful for Jesus who was sinless and loved us so much to come and die for the ungodly, Lord God. To be our substitute. Lord God, I pray for anyone here that is not no salvation yet if they are still outside of you Lord God I pray that as quickly as possible they would run to you asking for you to to cleanse them of their guilt Lord God because you have paid for it and that they would be in Christ they would be in found in you Lord God having died with you you took their place and you brought them to spiritual life Lord God I praise you for that And for all of us who have experienced this, all of us that are in Christ, let us treasure this and let us live this out as our identity every day. And may we glorify you. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, and our ark, we pray. Amen.